0: Welcome back to 90 Days New. We are at the halfway point here, day 45 of our 90-day New Testament reading plan. I hope it's gone smoothly thus far, and so you're encouraged that you can indeed get through the New Testament in 90 days. Today we're taking a look at First and Second Thessalonians. You are concluding the book of 2 Thessalonians if you've kept up with the reading plan to date. Um, but hopefully this gives you uh, some references as you look back on what you've read. And of course, I know that your interest is probably piqued by all of the end times discussions that take place in the book of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So while we could spend our time talking about how Paul is increasing their faith and explaining how um, the other communities have been observing the growing faith of the Thessalonian church, I know that you would rather hear about who the Antichrist is, and when the end of time is going to take place, and how that's going to happen and occur, and so we'll spend our time talking about those issues uh, to the best of my ability, at least, to explain these. There's some very challenging exegetical portions here that we will take a look at, um, but at first I want to turn our attention to First Thessalonians chapter. Four and in First Thessalonians chapter four is where Paul really gets into the coming of the Lord, and it seems that the church at Thessalonica had a concern that um, there those who had died and probably who had died because of their faith. There was some persecution that had come upon some of the believers and. Some were probably martyrs in the church, and there was a concern about what's going to happen to them. And uh, we get these questions today. There are people who want to know what has become of their loved ones. And so we certainly believe that those who are believers in Jesus Christ have an eternal destiny that is pleasant. But when do they die and go into the ground and sit there in what some have called soul sleep, where they are kind of just unconscious for a period of time until the end? Or do they die and do they um, immediately go to be with the Lord? Uh, And then where are they at this point and how are they existing? Are they in bodily form? Are they just a soul, a spirit? What's going on there? And so Paul answers some of those questions, not all of them in this particular passage, but he does address what's going to happen to us bodily as we get to the end of time. And so it says that uh, he doesn't want them to be uninformed. and He doesn't want them to grieve in verse 13. Um, But he says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the basis for the resurrection. And we see the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we've already read through as Paul explains that we have hope in the resurrection because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And if we don't believe in resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise from the grave. And if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then we are above all to be pitied. We are hopeless. And so looking at this passage, we see because Jesus rose from the grave, we can have faith and confidence that he's going to come and he's going to resurrect those who believe in him. And it says um, that we who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we don't have an advantage by staying alive. If Jesus comes before uh, we die, we aren't going to get first dibs, and we're not going to be in heaven without our loved ones who have already died, and as the Bible says, fallen asleep. That's just terminology for a Christian who has passed away, who is dead, because they're not going to stay dead. So oftentimes the biblical writers don't use the word dead, they use the word asleep. And those of us who are alive when Jesus comes, it says that we will not beat them to the finish line, but rather when the Lord descends from heaven, and, and then these are some qualifiers here. These are some descriptions of what's going to happen when he descends from heaven. Some people use the terminology of rapture. The word rapture does not show up anywhere in the scripture. Uh, so that's like a human word that's it been invented to describe the descending of Jesus Christ. Uh, But when he comes, when he descends, there will be a cry of a command, there will be the voice of an archangel, and there will be the sound of a trumpet. And these three things seem to happen simultaneously together. um, And as they happen, the dead in Christ, it says, will rise first. The dead in Christ, that's those who had died as Christians, died with faith in Jesus's atoning sacrifice of his life, his burial, his resurrection. But then it also says that it's not just a resurrection of the dead. This isn't just an occurrence where he's going to come back and take the dead, but it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So Jesus is coming down, and it seems he's not coming down to the earth here. He's not coming down and walking around doing anything. He's coming down partially. He is coming down and from the clouds. In fact, if you go back to the book of Acts and you recall when Jesus was taken up from the disciples, they were sitting there looking up into the heavens wondering what in the world just happened, and angels came and said the way that he departed is the way that he will come again. He will come on the cloud, And Jesus, when he taught about the end of time in the Gospels, talked about how the Son of Man would come on the clouds. And so here he is coming down, and he is in the air on the clouds, and we are being called to meet him, both the dead and the living who have put their faith and trust in Christ. And we will meet him in the air where the cloud is. And it says, we will always be with the Lord. So at this point, there's no more separation between us and Jesus. Where he is, we will be. And so Paul says to encourage one another with these words. That's something of encouragement. We don't need to worry about our loved ones. Now on the topic of soul sleep and and like what's happened to our uh, dead relatives who believed in Jesus um, in between now and then, 1 Thessalonians doesn't address it really, but Paul does say in other passages, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we know that when you die, you are with him. Jesus told the man on the cross next to him that today you would be with me in paradise. So though his body was not resurrected then, and though Paul, though he would die, his body would not be resurrected instantly. He knows that when he passes away, as a believer, he will be present with the Lord in some sense. And so I do not embrace the uh, idea of soul sleep. I do believe that when you die, your soul goes to be with Christ, but that is an impartial um, being for humanity. Humans were meant to have bodies. We were created with bodies, and we will conclude our days in eternity with bodies, and Therefore, this intermediate time period where you are separated from your body, that's not ideal, that's temporary, but you will receive a new body at the resurrection. And this is what's occurring here in 1 Thessalonians 4. This isn't him coming and taking our souls and leaving our bodies behind, but rather this is him coming and resurrecting our bodies. And there are a lot of questions you could ask about that. It's like, well, what if a body's been burned up? What if a body's decomposed? What if someone got cut in half and part of their body's in Mexico and the other part of it's up in, I don't know, Russia or somewhere like that? Uh, Those are interesting questions. And in fact, most people's bodies are no longer intact. And some of their bodies are actually a part of our bodies now which sounds weird and gross, but the nutrients from the breakdown of our bodies goes into the soil, which goes into the plants, which goes into the vegetation, which we turn around and eat. And um, all of this circle of life, we all get mixed up and mashed together. And I, he's not coming back for physical elements that are a part of our like biological composition. He is coming back in some other spiritual sense but there is a resurrection that is connected to the body and I believe it's going to be a recreation of the body as it's resurrected it'll be a glorified body and we will receive that as our reward for having faith and trust in him and and so how old will that body look um Will it be strong? Will it be healthy? Will we have the same freckle patterns? I I can't answer any of those questions from Scripture because it doesn't answer it. I just know that it's going to be glorified, and so it will certainly be good. There won't be any deficiency or any kind of uh, weakness associated with that body. It will be a glorified body, but that is something that we will receive when Jesus comes back. Chapter 5 is important to look at. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This is a saying that Jesus often articulated to his disciples. Is that he was going to come like a thief in the night. He was going to come when many people weren't looking for him. And so he encouraged his disciples to stay vigilant and to continue to look and wait and live their lives as if he was coming the next day. He's coming like a thief in the night as uh, the lightning strikes across the sky. You're not fully aware, you can't prepare yourself uh, for when that's gonna happen exactly. It just happens. And when it happens, it happens suddenly. And it happens with power. And so we need to be awaiting that. And we need to be prepared for Jesus to come at any moment. And so that's one of the things he teaches the people at Thessalonica. However, by the time we get to the second letter of Thessalonians, it seems that there's already been a false teaching that's crept into the church and has caused people angst that they have actually missed the coming of the Lord. And so before I even talk about that, that's primarily discussed in chapter two, I do wanna go to chapter one of 2 Thessalonians and take a look at what it says about the second coming here, because he, he makes a statement, Paul does in verse 6, that God is going to repay with affliction those who had afflicted the church, and he's going to grant relief to those who had been aff- afflicted And so we say, wow, God's going to come and he's going to make things right. When is that going to happen? When is he going to punish the evildoer? When is he going to take care of those who have made martyrs out of the Christians at Thessalonica and other places in the world? Well, he says this, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus. As you read through um, these passages about the end of time and as you go and you compare some of the passages in Revelation that we'll get to eventually, you see that one of the ways that Jesus is coming is depicted is he is coming with his angels and he is breathing destruction upon them. Sometimes it's Uh, depicted as fire coming from his mouth. Sometimes it's depicted uh, in other ways, fire raining down from heaven. If you look at Revelation 19 and you look at Revelation chapter 20, you'll see these descriptions of the destruction of the evildoer and of those who oppose the Christian church. But this is how God is going to have vengeance on the evildoer. He's going to come with this destruction. It says in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So you have these two categories of people: the people who are going to experience eternal life with Christ when he comes. He's going to resurrect them, he's going to give them glorified bodies, and they will forever be with him, it said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. They'll never be away from the Lord. But then there's this other group of people who the punishment is eternal uh, destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So our final destiny will either be with the Lord or away from the Lord. And we have a choice to make right now as where we want those final days to be. And that all boils down to our faith and trust. But let's take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is where Paul brings up the fact that many have been alarmed by uh, either a spoken word, it says, or a letter that seemed to be from Paul. Like maybe someone had written a pseudepigraphal letter in Paul's name that was claiming that the second coming had already taken effect. And he words it in the phrase, the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord is Old Testament language that is associated with the final day or days of Humanity on this earth before God's judgment is carried out on the evildoer and his deliverance takes place for the righteous. And so there is this rumor that that's already taken place. Now, I don't know how you can really convince people of something like that uh, without there being some obvious signs, but whatever they were saying, these false prophets had gotten to the heads of many believers and their faith was being shaken. And so Paul comes and he reminds them of things he had already taught them, it says, Uh, but he writes them down, which I'm glad he did so that we get the benefit of reading it because we don't have this in what he taught them in person, uh, but we do have it in scripture. Uh, And it says, for that day, Speaking of the day of the Lord, that day in verse 3 will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he makes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Another difficult portion of this passage is that in verse 6 it says that something is restraining this uh, son of destruction. And whatever is restraining him will at some point be taken out of the way, it says there in verse 7. And once it's taken out of the way, then the day of the Lord can come at that point, but not before then. So we have three questions. We have the question of what is the rebellion that's got to come first. We have the question of who is the son of destruction or the man of lawlessness. And then we have the question of what is restraining the son of lawlessness. There are various viewpoints on this, one of them coming from a group of predispensationalists who view the temple described here where the son of destruction will set himself up as a god, they'll view that temple as a physical temple, a temple that is built, a temple that is a literal interpretation of the book of Ezekiel and other Old Testament passages that prophesy of a future restoration of the temple. And so they believe that in the end time there will be a rebuilding of the temple and this son of destruction will set up as God in that temple, that physical temple, and that will be the events that transpire. Uh, And they'll describe the lawlessness as the fact that he is turning people away from God, and that's the rebellion that's being discussed. Uh, The word uh, rebellion comes from the Greek word apostasia, so when we use the word apostasy, that comes from that Greek word And they see apostasy as a falling away from the faith. And that's going to take place with this man of lawlessness setting up in that temple. And they would say the thing that's restraining him, the thing that's keeping him back and holding him back right now, many of them at least would say that that's the church. And the church is going to be taken out of the way. When the church is taken out of the way, then all this lawlessness and this Antichrist will be let loose on the world. And so the, um, the rapture becomes the thing that takes the church out of the way, and therefore they're not there for all of this lawlessness that breaks out. They are not around to see the destruction that comes. Um, but I don't think that that's a good interpretation of this passage. For one, the very argument that's being made here is Paul is describing the things that they should be able to see to know that they did not miss the day of the Lord. And if the church is taken out of the way before these things unfold, before rebellion comes, before the man of lawlessness sets up in the temple, if they're taken out of the way, then they're not gonna get to see those things. And so they're no longer proof that the day of the Lord hasn't come. And that's the very argument that Paul is making here is that you should be able to see these things with your own eyes, first, and that the, the coming of the lawless one is going to come by the activity of Satan. He's going to have power, false signs and wonders and wicked deception, and he, he's going to trick people, and God's going to send strong delusion, it says, so they will believe what this, this figure tells them. And so it's going to be a, a time of great trial for the believer, and they're going to have to endure this, it seems, based on what Paul is saying here. And so, for that idea that what's taken away is the church, that really doesn't seem to fit the bill here. Uh, Furthermore, I really don't like that interpretation or any interpretation similar to that that requires us to wait for a physical structure to be built before Jesus is coming. Jesus, when he was walking with his disciples, said, You don't know the day of the hour, it's going to come like a thief in the night. It can happen at any moment, at any moment. We've already talked about that when we read First Thessalonians chapter 5. At any moment, like a thief in the night, Jesus could come. And if we are waiting for the rebuilding of a temple that could be hundreds of years from now, then we really don't have to wait for Jesus. Like, he could come like a thief in the night. If that's a requirement before Jesus comes, that first the temple must be built, and then this son of lawlessness takes up his position as God in that temple, if that has to come first, then we can sit back and relax and we can do whatever we want to do. I mean, that's we wouldn't, but that's one argument that can be made, that this idea that there is an imminent coming of Christ, that it could come at any moment, that goes away if you take this viewpoint. So I don't take that viewpoint. I don't like any viewpoint that does not allow for a coming of Christ soon and very soon. I think the Bible teaches that very clearly. A second viewpoint that you might take is the preterist viewpoint. The preterists are a group of people who believe that a lot of what is looked at as futuristic and and end times teaching is often fulfilled in the events that took place in 70 AD. So it was gonna be future from when 2 Thessalonians was written, but not way future, not future for us. It's actually things that have already happened in the past. And so they look at this passage and they say, look, when it talks about the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction, that's some of the same language that's used in the book of Daniel. When it says that he exalts himself up as a god, um, that's the same language that's used in the book of Daniel also. When they're talking about the de- uh, the abomination that causes desolation. And the abomination that causes desolation was also a quote by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 when he's talking about uh, the events of the destruction of the temple. And so they believe that Paul is talking here about the destruction of the temple. When you go back and you look at the book of Daniel, we see that fulfilled uh, first and foremost in the figure of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple of Israel in 167 B.C., and there he began to worship to foreign gods, to uh, the god Zeus and Jupiter, and all these other gods he worshiped there in the temple precinct. And he even sacrificed a pig on the altar, and, and that's unkosher. In fact, the Seleucids wanted to rid the Jews of all of their heritage, all of their practices, their culture, their um, their religious rituals. They wanted it all gone. They wanted to Hellenize them and make them Greeks. But a family called the Maccabees, uh, they revolted. And the Maccabean revolt actually won. And in, in, in time, 30 or so years later, they actually got their independence and they became free from the grip of the Seleucid kingdom. Uh, and they retained that until about 63 BC when Pompey came in and he took back over the Israelites and uh, became their sovereign. And so you look at those events, and they are fulfilling the predictions made in the book of Daniel. That a man was going to come in, he's going to enter the temple... And he was going to make himself out to be God, not because he demanded to be worshiped, but because he violated all the things that God had said to do in the temple. Well, now in 70 AD, a Roman man is going to come into the temple, a man named Titus, and he is going to violate all that God has said to do in the temple. And so, he is, in in very much the same way as Antiochus Epiphanes, a figure who puts himself above God. He doesn't care about the Jewish word. He doesn't care about the Jewish commands. He doesn't care about the Jewish worship. He's just concerned about his own gods and about people bowing down to him because he has the authority of Rome. And so they look at this and they say, listen, this is the lawlessness that was being... Uh, referred to in Daniel, that is fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. So now it's kind of coming full circle and happening again in the uh, man Titus, the Romans. And so he is the man of lawlessness. He is the son of destruction. And uh, you can have various ideas of what the restraining uh, force is. That restraining force may have just been Um, whatever politically was keeping him at bay, um, whether it was the marching orders from Caesar or um, maybe he was waiting for the time to be right for different uh, political factors to play out. But whatever it was, maybe it was just an angel. Oftentimes the Bible depicts an angel who is battling in a spiritual way that when the battle is over, physical things Come into play. That's actually that's the language used in the book of Daniel because Michael is the one who is fighting back the Persians for a time, but then they come. So it's very similar, and uh, I, I think there's a lot of validity to that interpretation. I think it it actually solves a lot of issues, but it and it also doesn't make us have to sit back and wait for hundreds of years for something to unfold for Jesus to come. Yes, they did have something that had to take place, but it was going to take place very soon. So it was still very imminent. Jesus could have come back at any time after those events if that is what's being depicted in 2 Thessalonians 2. But there's a third way of interpreting this, and that third way is to look at the man of lawlessness as a false prophet in the church. And so he's not going to set up himself in a physical temple, like Titus came into the physical temple, or like the um, pre-trib dispensationalist view the end-time temple as a, a new temple that will be built. So you can ignore all of that. The temple that is being referenced in this viewpoint, this third viewpoint, is that he's talking about false prophets setting up in the church. Because every time Paul uses the word temple, he's always talking about the church, in First Corinthians three, he uses uh, the word temple to refer to the church. In first Corinthians six, he uses temple to refer to the church. And he does that in 2 Corinthians 6. He does that in Ephesians chapter 2. Peter talks about the temple of God and in, in the language of the temple in First Peter chapter 2. Uh, throughout the New Testament, unless it's in the gospels talking about the physical temple that exists. When it's talking about the temple in the New Testament, it's always a reference to either Jesus as the temple of God, like when he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, he was talking about his body, or it's a reference to his church. And so it it would actually be a unique way of using the word temple here in 2 Thessalonians 2 if it was not talking about the church. And so I think there's a lot of validity in this, to see the Antichrist or um, the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2 as being a a leader in the church who begins to go against God. He begins to say that things are okay, that God is called sin. He begins to call things sin that God says is okay. And through this process, he ends up deceiving many people and causing... Um, satanic activity and power and signs to to infiltrate the church. And that's why it calls it a falling away. And That's what the very word apostasy means, that rebellion is to turn from the faith. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 24. He says lawlessness will abound and that the love of many will grow cold, that the end of time is going to be this time that people begin to depart from the faith. So that seems to fit all of the biblical descriptions of the end times that there will be a turning away from the faith and there's going to be a figure at the middle of it who is called the Antichrist. Now we don't know who that is. We don't know what his name is. In fact John tells us in 1 John that there are many Antichrists. There have been many Antichrists. There will continue to be many Antichrists. And so we can't sit back and say well Jesus isn't coming yet because uh, the Antichrist hasn't showed up. We don't know. He may be here right now and all it takes is whatever that restraining force, whether that's an angel, whether and, and that's kind of what I seem to believe because I think that fits the biblical narrative. That's what the restraining force was in the book of Daniel. That's what the restraining force seems to be in the book of Revelation. When you see the uh, the archangels battling with the demons and with Satan, they bind him. Uh, you know, th- these are restrainers, and when that restraining um, force is removed. That's when the demonic forces are let loose to make their attack. That's when all these um, parts of the puzzle can begin to shift and move. And that's what I think is happening here. And, uh, and, and it could be the second um, option I gave you mixed with the third option. It could be that the second option was kind of like the immediate fulfillment of what Paul is saying here, with the third option being the extended fulfillment. We get that, that dual fulfillment in a lot of places in scripture, but those are kind of the main ways of interpreting this passage and looking at the end time, looking at who the um, Antichrist is, looking at what the end of time, the resurrection, and all that's going to look like, those are some of the different ways that you can interpret this passage. And uh, while I reject point number one, I do think two and three are plausible. And so you're just going to have to do a little more research, um, and we'll uh, probably talk about some more of these things as we continue our 90-day adventure.